Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton and McKenna working behind the scenes. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Jim Payne. He is the mayor of Superior, Wisconsin. He'll talk about the process behind attracting retailers to small and mid-sized markets. He'll talk about what retailers are sometimes looking for, why sometimes this might be a little misguided, and what his city is doing to attempt to lure retailers back to the city. In news, we'll discuss very briefly a positive direction for one national retail REIT and a negative direction for one e-commerce pure play retailer. And we'll look ahead to Walmart attempting to launch a resale platform on their website. Well, a quick reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. And also, if you haven't already, subscribing to the podcast certainly does help out as far as our end is concerned. So you can do that on any platform or listening service. Now, jumping into news, national retail property shows that retailers are still seeking space in the current climate. And the reason I think this is positive is we've seen a lot of doom and gloom news stories really in the past couple of weeks. You see headlines like record retail bankruptcies predicted coming up. It had the feel of 2016 through 2019, about those pre-COVID headlines, if you will, surrounding retail. And yet national retail properties' latest update suggests that reality, at least in brick and mortar, may be counter to that somewhat as the thirst for retail space remains strong from retailers. As a background, NRP has 3,305 total properties in 48 states. Hawaii and Vermont, in case you are wondering, are the lone outliers in which they don't have any properties. But this equates to 33.5 million square feet of gross leasing area, so they are one of the largest retail-centric REITs that are out there. Their main tenants, at least in terms of square footage, include 7-Eleven, which makes up nearly 5% of their total portfolio, Camping World, BJ's Wholesale, Couchtard, and Best Buy, among others. They are highly diversified, so you're not looking at something like a Kimco, where they're focused on those grocery-anchored neighborhood centers. You're looking at ultimate diversification here from anything from convenience stores to shopping centers to single-tenant big boxes. Their holdings include mixed-use and automotive service, as well as traditional retail. But those convenience stores, as we mentioned with 7-Eleven and Couchtard, they make up the greatest amount of their lease income from retailers. 17% of their portfolio actually comes from convenience stores. In their most recent quarter, their main numbers continued to look strong despite that inflationary context that has some onlookers, as we talked about, doubting potential over the next few quarters in the retail sector. Occupancy at quarter's end was 99.1%. That is in line with their previous two quarters. For comparison's sake, we'd say any occupancy over 95% would be solid for a REIT currently. So 99.1% definitely among the top performers as far as retail real estate is concerned. Not only is the vast, vast majority of their portfolio leased up, but the remaining lease term continues to be in the double digits. Retailers seem to be exuding confidence regarding those longer lease terms. 
and are continuing to sign lengthy initial leases and extensions, something that we actually talked about on the show a few weeks ago. Their average remaining lease term at National Retail Properties was 10.6 years as of June 30th, which again, as far as REITs are concerned, is very long. Some of this, of course, helps out by the fact that they do lease to so many convenience stores and those C stores likely to have longer term leases on properties. But all of this came despite the fact that National Retail Properties was acquiring properties at a breakneck rate during the quarter. They were bringing a number of properties on board. And you'd think in some cases this might decrease the overall occupancy rate. But in this case, it appears as though they were procuring properties that were completely leased up. They acquired 43 properties to add to their stable. They sold eight properties, which produced an average of about $100,000 gain per sale, which was remarkable, again, considering their average sale was under $1 million. So this signifies that they're able to not only work with retailers to stay in these spaces, but perhaps signing them to longer-term leases, turning around and selling the property for an appreciation. That brings, by the way, NRP's total property acquisition number to 102 year-to-date net 84 as they've sold off a total of 18 properties. And although we don't talk much about financials when it comes to REITs, they did see a year-over-year jump in funds from operations by $0.07 per share. It's up around $13 million when you look at the aggregate versus a year ago at this time. So overall, more positive news, at least if you're looking at brick-and-mortar retail, especially in that C-Store segment. We talk about C-Stores making up nearly 20% of their portfolio, and we see from the underlying numbers at NRP that these C-Stores are obviously competent enough to ink longer-term extensions, especially the likes of Couchard and 7-Eleven but also some positivity considering there are other stores in their portfolio. You look at BJ's Wholesale. Of course, BJ's has been successful really ever since the pandemic started, ever since they became a publicly traded company. But also Best Buy. Best Buy makes up nearly 2% of their overall leasing portfolio. And so maybe some positivity there for big box retail that you don't hear a lot about. Overall, though, I think you've got to not only applaud national retail properties for getting the job done, making sure their portfolio is leased up. But also, I think this is a positive if you're looking at the retail landscape as a whole. This is not something that we were seeing from a lot of REITs back in 2015 and 2016, where you were seeing a lot of retail closures, you were seeing a lot of retail bankruptcies. And a lot of the news stories, even as recently as 2019, centered around how many retail stores were closing. Obviously, the pandemic affected some of that in 2020. But overall, you're not seeing necessarily the backlash that you would expect from the retail industry based on inflation and inflationary impacts, especially from maybe those non-essential forms of retail, if you will. But that positive news did not extend to Wayfair during their earnings call this week. The online home furnishings retailer who was profitable for parts of last year, they struggled amidst a larger environment that is seemingly restraining spending on their product lines. It should be noted, though, that third-party data suggests that customer spending is not as bearish in home furnishings as was originally expected this year. We've seen third-party data and government data suggesting, really, that in these categories, 
We've seen roughly even spending this year in some cases or just a single-digit drop-off. Any pullback in home furnishings uh, in terms of spending by U.S. consumers as a whole seems to be disproportionately affecting Wayfair here. Wayfair's active customers for their most recent quarter, which was their fiscal second quarter, that dipped 24.1% year over year. They now have just 23.6 million active customers. But what customers they do have were spending more. LTM net revenue per active customer was $537 as of the quarter's end, which was up 12.3% year over year. This despite orders per active customer falling by around 0.1%. So basically, you're looking at average order value increasing, and that's exactly what we saw. Average order value for them up $330 versus $278 a year ago. Potentially be good for their bottom line here because that does create efficiencies on a per-order basis, reduces those overall shipping costs slightly, reduces the handling costs associated with packing those orders and getting them ready to ship. Also, you'd have to think that inflationary impacts increasing prices certainly having some sort of impact on ticket size for their active customers. But their total orders delivered were down, as one could guess. Their second quarter orders totaled 10 million even, which is down 28.2% year over year. So basically, in summary, not as many people ordering from Wayfair. Those that are are ordering slightly more, but not nearly enough to counteract the loss in active customers and loss in overall orders. A larger percentage of Wayfair's orders are coming from repeat customers. 78.6% of their orders now come from repeat customers versus 75.6% a year ago. Even still, those repeat customers are ordering with 25.7% less frequency. So basically what this is saying is, hey, it's great that so many customers are repeat customers, but it's more likely the fact that that's showing up in metrics because new customers are not shopping at Wayfair. So Wayfair is doing an okay job retaining their customer base versus attracting new customers, but still the sales metrics, even when it comes to their repeat customers, are subpar. Maybe the most interesting number for Wayfair is the slowing in mobile spend. Something that we've heard from a lot of third-party data providers is that we have an atmosphere currently where mobile orders are increasing throughout the U.S. and increasing at most retailers. But when you look at Wayfair, fewer people placed orders via mobile at Wayfair than last year as a percentage of sales and on a true numerical basis. 59% of Wayfair's orders were placed via mobile in their second quarter of this year. That was versus 59.4% in the second quarter of 2021 and really shows a halting of a trend that appears to be only growing more robust for other retailers. You see other retailers' share of e-commerce sales really beginning to lean more and more towards mobile. You're not seeing that at Wayfair, and this could either indicate a lack of strength in their mobile platform or maybe that Wayfair's customer base is growing more amenable to other platforms in comparison or maybe shopping a little bit more via desktop. In any case, all of these numbers for Wayfair brought, as expected, large losses for the quarter. This is a retailer that pre-pandemic was struggling to remain profitable. As I mentioned, they were profitable in portions of last year. But Wayfair overall, as a company, I think their story, if one were to tell it on the profitability front, would be that they've struggled to maintain profitability in previous years 
with greater sales numbers than what they saw this quarter. In the quarter, they posted a $3.59 per share loss. Overall top line revenue for them was down $573 million in the quarter or 14.9%. Now, it is better in the U.S. than it is internationally. U.S. net revenue decreased just 9.7%, so at least U.S. sales are declining less than international sales. But they do maintain liquidity for now at Wayfair. Despite net cash flows being in the negative, they saw $244 million leave through their doors during this last quarter. They still have $1.7 billion in cash and cash equivalents on hand. But again, I think we're beyond the point of warning signs on the dashboard or the check engine light being on on the dashboard. As far as Wayfair is concerned, again, it's difficult for them after having seen profitability last year to dip so far into the negatives this year. Massive double-digit decreases in total sales, double-digit decreases in terms of active customers, double-digit decreases in ordering frequency. None of this portends well for Wayfair, and management on the call mostly blamed macroeconomic impacts, and they said, hey, we're going to tighten our belt to make sure that we make it through. But ultimately, at some point, you've got to start attracting customers back. And when we see in this so-called rough macroeconomic environment, other retailers treading water or even doing better than that, it's incumbent upon Wayfair to kind of strike somewhere to find these customers and gain these customers back that they are losing. So that'll do it for our news segment here on the show. Coming up, we'll talk to Jim Payne, again, mayor of Superior, Wisconsin. It's an interesting conversation. He'll talk about retail from a city leader's perspective, including what cities are doing to attract retailers to their cities. Also, why retailers might not be looking at the right metrics when it comes to opening up locations in their city. And where it might benefit a city to focus on local retailers rather than national chain retailers that have more stringent site requirements. We continue our interview series from ICSC in Las Vegas, and now we're going to talk about specifically mid-sized market retail, but from the perspective of a city itself. We're pleased to be joined by Jim Payne. He's the mayor of Superior, Wisconsin. Superior, I was there earlier this year. A fantastic city. They've got a lot of things going on. But we're going to talk to him today, not only about the retail scene in Superior, but what towns can do to make them attractive for potential retailers. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. I'm looking forward to this. So first of all, give us, if you can, the elevator pitch for Superior, Wisconsin. What are we looking at when we talk about Superior, Wisconsin? So Superior is a small city in northern Wisconsin, and we're part of a, a larger urban area that includes Duluth, Minnesota. Population of Superior is about 27,000, or close to 150,000 in the whole region. In terms of Wisconsin, it's fairly isolated. When you think Wisconsin, you're thinking Milwaukee, Madison, then a whole bunch of farms and cows, and that's not us. We are way in the north woods on the icy shore of Lake Superior. We're also a very traditional and old city founded in the middle of the 19th century, and so we have a beautiful and historic downtown and uh, beautiful and still functional neighborhoods that spread out. But like many American cities throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we lost a lot of that as 
actually the retail environment changed. And as America shifted from downtowns and community-based retail environments to shopping malls and then big box, we lost a lot of the local flavor. Now, if that sounds like I'm critical of corporate retail, that's partially true because I don't like the predecessors of modern retail. I think they did a lot of damage to cities, but they're figuring it out really well and they're finding new ways to integrate in communities. But we've been building back pretty dramatically in the last few years, like many cities. And we have a thriving retail environment now, one that corporate retail is starting to notice. What initiative is the city taking in order to attract those strong retailers to the city? So we have two ways of doing that. If I can be very high-minded, I would, I would call them a, a functionalist and a structuralist way of approaching it. The functionalist is very simple. The direct things we do to attract retail, and that's direct incentive. A lot of communities do this, but we took a slightly different approach. So first, of course, we do the big stuff. We can make a direct investment in somebody that's doing new construction or a build out. We have a lot of different ways to do that. Most folks would know things like tax increment financing and land grants. But we took a slightly different approach as well. We took the kind of incentives that were always going to large retailers and started investing them in small businesses as well. So we give grants as small as $1,000 to $50,000 as matching grants to just about anybody. And that's been able to foster entrepreneurship. So you want to start a business, whether you are trying to invest in Superior, or if you live in Superior now and want to open one, become a franchisee or open a totally new business, we can help do that with cash. Now, the structuralist argument is, what do we do to create a better retail environment? That's what's good for corporate retail. We're we're here at ICSC. If you walk around and talk to retailers, the very first thing of any packet or even on their displays is going to be their site requirements. What are they looking for? So in order to attract them, we got to meet that because no matter how great we are as salespeople, that's where the argument starts and ends. And so what we focused on is the things that cities do transportation and space building. So we created new streets, new main streets, and we made them pedestrian friendly and we made them friendly for small local business. And that's important for attracting corporate retail because it brings customers, retail environments. What made shopping malls work was they packed all the customers in the same space. So if you went for one store, you might stop in a bunch. We're taking that same concept and bringing it back to our downtowns where it worked originally by making them pleasant places to be. And that's exactly the type of answer that we're looking for because it's very descriptive as far as what towns are now doing. You mentioned the walkability of the downtown area. I'm curious, though, because you mentioned site requirements for some of the larger retailers. It's not that you can just grab 10,000 people, dump them in an area and say, well, now our traffic counts are increased and now we have a lot more people here. So what are some other things that you're doing to ensure that maybe either you can meet those site requirements for retailers or you can make retailers see kind of the compelling argument for Superior, even if you might just be short of those site requirements. So that's a good question because some things are very, very hard to change. Obviously, we really want to increase the median income in our communities without creating gentrification. We want to keep the place livable for the people that live there now. So my goal as a mayor is always, always to work for those citizens first. And I'll never do anything for anybody out of the town at the expense of our citizens. So if we can increase their wages, that's great for everybody. And that helps us meet things like site requirements. 
Now, on the other hand, one of the things that I've been trying to say, we don't like site requirements. They are very short-sighted and so narrow that they are costing retailers good markets. If anybody out there has a site requirement, you need to look at it in a different way. One, throw out traffic counts. They are very, very bad for business. This is proven over and over and over in the United States. We have a highway that was built in our city. It was a very bad mistake. It gutted the business community that, that was thriving along that street. Because you know what cars do? They drive away. They drive past. Think about the last time you slammed on your brakes because you saw the sign of some store that you like. And our corporate retail in the United States tends to be clustered on what urbanists call strodes, a mix of a road and a street that is terrible for traffic, terrible to navigate. And they have quarter or half mile setbacks from the street to get there. They're tough environments for business. Good environments for business are when you are as close to your customer as you can possibly be. And that's foot traffic. That's getting folks, by the way, it's making parking harder because if you park a little ways away, but your space is walkable and beautiful and comfortable, people walk a little further and they check out your business and they walk in. And you're seeing a lot of corporate retailers getting smart and figuring that out now and putting themselves in downtowns. The other thing is look at wider urban areas. The biggest challenge we have, and this is just unique to Superior and a few other communities, we're on a state border. So that's why I led this conversation with 27,000 people in Superior. A lot of folks are going to miss the other 100,000 people that are there. And the fact that Wisconsin is a far friendlier environment for large business than Minnesota is. It's a friendlier tax environment, but you get all their customers if you sit in Superior. So site location professionals should be expanding and doing a little bit more detailed research because they're missing very lucrative markets. And now that's not always bad for me because you know who's filling that? Local entrepreneurs. And that's good, but we need diversity in our retail markets and there's a lot of opportunity to expand. And sometimes corporate retail is local entrepreneurs through franchisees. And so they should just look a little bit closer. You talk about local retailers as well. And I'm curious because for those that don't know who haven't been there, University of Wisconsin-Superior is also located within your fine city. I'm wondering, are you seeing some sort of maybe a movement in terms of students gravitating from the college into entrepreneurship or, or maybe starting their own business? What role does the college play or the university play in terms of ensuring that strong retail scene in Superior? Yeah, it's not so much that we're seeing it, we're facilitating it. It's happening. One of the things that we're most proud of in Superior is our very cohesive development team. So just about anybody that touches business in any way is a part of it. We have the chancellor of UW-Superior here at ICSC to talk about a lot of these things. And we've done a lot of work to incorporate the physical space of the university into the broader community to connect those students to the city that they're living in for these couple of years. But we have real programs too, like our Entrepreneur Fund, which was born at the university, to take folks that have passion and an idea and to translate that into business. One of the biggest challenges for small entrepreneurs, folks don't know how to do the process of business. Like they know how to cook or they know how to make something or they know how to provide a service and they're very, very good at it. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want a CPA baking for me or cooking for me if they're not a great cook. I want great cooks to do their cooking for me, but they shouldn't need to know how to do their books necessarily. We teach them how to do that. We facilitate that. We make the business plans. We find, we connect them to capital. We were routinely shocked at some of the basics people didn't know. They didn't keep lines of credit. They weren't able to pay their utility bills in the slow times. We're able to fix that. And that all started at the university, partially to 
increase the success of their students, but also to keep people in the community. You mentioned the slow times, and there are some slow times for some businesses in the area. For those that don't know, it does get cold where, <laughs> where you're at. But the positive thing is that there are fast times during the summer. Your area is fantastic as far as drawing tourists and those that want to see and interact with Lake Superior. How do you balance the fast times with the slow times as far as your conversation with retailers and making sure that they're basically well taken care of the entire year around? Yeah, well, first, like with everything, we have to listen to them. That takes proactive effort on our part. And again, by us, I mean the development team. And it's the city, the university, our development association, our business improvement district. And it's constant check-ins to see where they're hurting. Because the slow times are not the same for everybody. If you're running a snow clearing operation, you do pretty well in the winter. And summer's a bummer. But for most retailers, you get that real bad slump after the Christmas season. And so what we started trying to do is quite a bit more local promotion to find the tourists that live in the city. And again, you mentioned it gets cold in Superior, colder than you think, much, much colder than you think. Yesterday, you told me it was, oh my gosh, freezing at eight degrees. That's usually spring for us. That's when it starts to warm up. And January and February, we spend most of it well below zero. People stay in their houses and it's unpleasant. So we try to draw them out into that scene and we do it as a community. So it's not just making commercials say, hey, shop local or come check this stuff out. We create festivals around it or ice festivals in January and we're disappointed when it's 10 above. So, and then we spread that out. So we try to draw people out of their homes and make winter tourists to create new seasons where they didn't exist before. There are really no holidays in January and February, or at least not big public ones. So we take them and we turn them into holidays. We double down our Valentine's Day promotion, keep your love local, we called it, which is silly, but cute. And creating more festivals. And again, finding out where people have their different slow times. December can be a very, very slow time for local restaurants, while the other retailers are surging. So you alluded to it earlier. A lot of what you do as a mayor is a process. Sometimes it takes a lot of work, sometimes many years worth of work. And being cognizant of that, I wanted to ask you if, if I gave you a magic wand and you could do one thing for the city of Superior retail-wise and just fix it tomorrow, what would it be? Or, or something that maybe a lot of people in your size towns might use that magic wand for retail-wise. What I would do is increase wages. I would increase household income. That checks every box in this convention hall and it's good for the people of superior it means they have more disposable income they get to build wealth it attracts retailers it builds entrepreneurship because they can invest and become entrepreneurs that is the silver bullet if i gave that wand to many people in the community they would bring target back we had a target that closed and that's where i really started learning about retail because to me i led with some of my animosity towards big box retail and what i think they did to communities and so i was caught off guard by that people were passionate and upset about it. like how are you in love with a retailer like in love with it the way they love parks and beautiful spaces and I started to understand more about the retail experience and the emotional connection it creates. They're not just selling you your underwear and your toilet paper. They bring families together. It's something to do on a Saturday and Sunday. It's how, how people still connect with their mom and it's fun. And so I tried to take that and apply it 
to a citywide experience. So, of course, if the target site execs are listening to the podcast, we've got a great space for you, but it's not a giant box. We can connect you to community and sell a lot of really great stuff in Superior, Wisconsin, and build those relationships in different ways. That's a fantastic story, actually, and I think it provides a lot of color as far as the background in terms of the thought processes in a lot of these communities. We'll f- close on this. What's next for Superior Wisconsin on the retail front? Obviously, I'm sure there are retail projects in the works and that type of thing, but just holistically, three to five year window, what's next for Superior? It's the return of corporate brands. So we had a long but severe decline in corporate brands in Superior as they exploded across the United States in the late 20th century. And I've always had this theory that I picked up from places like the Congress of New Urbanism and Strong Towns, that when you invest in local spaces, local people thrive first and the spaces come back. And because the leases are affordable and they're empty, And as that happens and you invest in the public spaces like the streets and sidewalk infrastructure and make them beautiful, customers start to return. And then the metrics start becoming attractive again for corporate brands. We start meeting more of the site requirements as people are clustered in that space. And that's what we're starting to see happening. We see a couple of corporate brands are returning, reinvesting, and they're doing it in ways that just thrill me as a mayor because they're using space instead of creating empty space. So my biggest problem with Big Box was that they leveled massive, massive space for parking lots and and made buildings that can't be used again. And now we see small restaurants like like Taco Bells and things like that built in parking lots. Starbucks built in parking lots, still using the space, but now it's taxable. It's it's generating value and closing it off and bringing people closer together, not pushing them apart. It sounds like the next generation of corporate brand retail is much more community focused than it was in the last generation. There's something very interesting happening in mid-sized markets. I found myself in a lot of major metropolitan cities recently, and the pandemic has really changed things. We don't know if people will be returning to the office because even as the pandemic proved that a lot of folks, a lot can work from home and now want to, the (laughs) spiking gas prices are driving that movement even further. Well, a lot of the office space, the office populations in city centers that were supporting retail and restaurants throughout the day are gone. And I don't know how major cities recover from that, but that's a boom for mid-sized cities because we all live near corporate retail. I can walk to 90% of the retailers in Superior, Wisconsin from my house comfortably. Most people can. And so that's where you're going to find lucrative markets again. I think we're in for a renaissance of the small city. Some absolutely fantastic insights. Well, Jim, I appreciate your time this morning. Again, if you haven't been to Superior, Wisconsin, I personally highly recommend it. But as someone who thinks eight degrees is cold, you know, pick your time of year wisely. But Jim, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. This was fun. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts.
Well, we thank Jim for joining us as part of our ICSC interview series. We'll be joined next week by a representative from SmartCart, you know, the company that makes the airport push carts that we're all very familiar with. Well, they make a number of things to assist retailers and retail shopping centers as well. And so they'll talk a little bit about how they manufacture products to keep people in a shopping center for a longer period of time and the dynamics of those particular devices, whether they be mobility devices or mobility assistance devices or something to keep kids entertained for a longer period of time. Well, we've reached the final segment of our podcast, which means we're going to look ahead to a story that we're keeping an eye on over the next week, month, or year. And here we're looking at Walmart's new restored platform. This is a platform that ostensibly will help their customers discover, and I quote, refurbished products at everyday low prices, end quote. So there is now a section on walmart.com where you can go to Walmart Restored, and ultimately you see a number of appliances, a number of electronics items, and Walmart, in theory, has partnered with other providers to inspect, test, and clean some of these devices. But again, the most popular devices here, you're looking at cell phones, computers, TVs, video games, and so forth. Really not talking about something that's going to infringe on, say, ThreadUp's market share, if you will. But realistically, the bulk of what they're selling is electronics. And I think this is just another extension of Walmart's foray into e-commerce. Again, they want to basically be an answer to Amazon in terms of e-commerce. So this gives them another category to launch towards their various customers. And the reason I'm looking ahead is because retail as an industry is very much a copycat industry. So if this is successful or even break even for Walmart, really, in terms of e-commerce, which retailers will we see kind of mock this approach? Which retailers will we see undertake this approach? And also, will we see some of these products in retail stores? Will there be a brick and mortar component to their restored platform? I think this is an area where you you look at some of their brick and mortar customers, you look at the brick and mortar customer base for Walmart. I think this would actually play pretty well in a brick and mortar context, but of course, trying it online is going to have less overhead. And when you're working with third-party suppliers, you don't have to worry about getting the product actually to the stores. But the idea here is that they've timed the launch for back-to-school shopping, which, as we've talked about with Rod Sides of Deloitte and others, we expect technology spend to be down a little bit. But still, this could give Walmart a slight leg up on the competition when it comes to back-to-school shopping for technology. Anxious to see how this product line goes for Walmart, they do offer 90-day free returns for people. So if you get a product, it doesn't work as expected. You can return it within 90 days. So for Walmart, interesting foray into basically restored and refurbished products and who will follow if this is successful for the company. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus podcast recording from Utah this week, and we'll be in Michigan next week, actually, so we continue our stretch of recording on the road when possible. Big thanks to McKenna and Layton behind the scenes for making everything click. I'm Trent Kling saying so long until next week's podcast. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com 
and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.